Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Today in the podcast, we have Kimberly Woolery on the, on the show. Welcome, Kimberly. Hi, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I am just happy to be on again. Yes, again. That's show. right. That's right. <laughs> Hopefully, I released this in the right order. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I did a we did an interview with Kimberly and, and a couple of her colleagues talking about uh, ABA in the Caribbean. Um, and, yes, uh, and that was cool. And this will be a bit of a follow up on that, but also more focus on kind of on, on the work Kimberly does. But before we get to it, I just want to acknowledge the uh that i'm on that i'm hosting this podcast on the territories of the Kalaman, Klehus, homoko and comox first nations who were one nation before uh, we colonists came and separated them into reserves we're going to talk today about uh telehealth yes my favorite is, topic <laughs> yeah and, and a topic uh i don't think i've had on the podcast yet um you know i think partly because I started this podcast during the pandemic and uh, yeah. you know telehealth was everywhere and everyone yes. was talking about it and yes. uh, the, the, you know there there was no there was no no end to sort of the conversations and 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 writings on telehealth but I think what I haven't heard much about is um, well first off I haven't really talked to talked to anyone who was in telehealth before covid um yeah <laughs> Um, you know, and, and that telehealth was actually a, a thing, but you know, that actually doing services via Zoom or whatever was a thing long before yeah. the pandemic hit. So that's one thing. But also, you know, sort of the, you know, the cultural pieces around telehealth. It's all, you know, it, it's one, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of what, what you know, when you go into a home of a different culture yes. and sort of, you know, and I've been able to sort of share, there's obviously lots of, individualizing when you do culturally responsive work but there are some there are there can be some sort of general sorts of things you know like uh, i know first i I, you know interviewed so many people now but i know there was like one person i interviewed and 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 for their culture you know you know you you always take your shoes off or something you know yes that's just just a standard like doesn't matter who it is you're always gonna take your shoes off and so yes you know as as a clinician you you want to know that so you don't walk in your shoes right away and already ruin the relationship um right so it's going to be, but, uh, but on telehealth, you're not walking into their house. You can keep no. your shoes on and, um, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, thinking about sort of culturally responsive care in the context of telehealth is, well, I've never really thought about it. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of diving into that. Uh, but before we get there, um, maybe we could just learn a little bit about uh, you already kind of mentioned briefly that, you know, you're in Jamaica and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about, um, you know, why in Jamaica you're doing telehealth. So uh, to give a little backstory. So I am physically present in Jamaica most of the time, um, but I also go back and forth to Florida, which is like an all one twenty seven minutes. Uh, but so again, going back, let's go back to 
let's go back to 2012 when mm. I graduated with my master's degree and I was looking to get my fieldwork hours. Um, it was really, really very difficult for me because there were no BCBAs on the island and it was hard for me to kind of pick up myself and leave the island um, and get experience elsewhere because that would be mm. the natural the natural um, transition for me to go to Florida and like get my experience because at the time my dad was very sick mm. and I just felt, for me personally, I just felt that I need to be at home to support him and support my mom. Um, so I made that personal decision. So I was seeking out remote supervision at the time through Rethink. And um, as I said, it was really, really very, very challenging. I was probably at the time working with maybe five kids locally if that much and the amount of direct hours I was accruing was maybe six if that much mm. um, because there's a huge unfortunately stigma of mental illness in Jamaica um, and that comes from the fact that we are a very religious country we actually have the most churches per capita than anywhere else in the world and wow. that of course yeah it's it's a very where it's very weird a very random fact but we do have the most churches per capita than anywhere else in the world so anywhere if you're to come to jamaica right now you would see a church like basically every five minutes you would book up on a church um so there's one we have a couple barriers one is funding we don't have insurance funding Two, we have the stigma of mental health illness. I think my generation, we're starting to talk about mental health. We're starting to have more open conversations about it. But at that time, um, unfortunately, the parents that I was dealing with, they did not want to really acknowledge that their child had a diagnosis. They don't really want other people to know that their child was receiving any types of services. They may have had misconceptions about ABA. And then I was this young person. They didn't really know anything about it. Um, and then again, there's that religious aspect. And then, of course, it's very expensive, right? So right now, um, as you know, the American model is that you receive 10 hours of ABA at minimum, right? Um, and, you know, it's very expensive, even if you have insurance coverage. Mm. Uh, and so I, I don't remember the number of what ABA costs, but I remember, like, I think if I remember, like, with some of the kids that I work with remotely right now, like, they may have, like, a $20 copay or something like that. But at the time, it was costing them, like, 3000 3,500 Jamaican dollars for like an hour. And to put wow. that into context at the time, it would probably equate to like 30 US dollars. But if we look at the GDP per capita, um, what is in Jamaica right now, the GDP per capita right now as of 2021 is actually 5,183 and 58 cents US dollars in 2021, that is what our GDP per capita in US dollars wow. is for 2021. So if you put that into context as to what the average Jamaican can afford, ABA is not really affordable without insurance and we don't mm. have insurance funding. Um, so really I was catering to the top 1% of the population. Sure. And then again, it kind of gets sticky because it even turned out that my first client or case was actually, it turned out to be like a distant relative. It wasn't related to me, but it was related to like my older sister, but I couldn't deny services because it was, it was the one person that was 
willing for me to like record and mm. send to my supervisor and everything. So I was really struggling again to accrue hours. So I was like, okay, maybe I can accrue it remotely. And I reached out to special learning and I actually accrued a lot of unrestricted hours through special learning. And then I started to research telehealth um, as a viable option because I was like, well, if I'm being supervised remotely, why can't I be provide services remotely? Hmm. Uh, so it became this kind of passion project. And I thought maybe I could also bring telehealth to Jamaica, but I didn't know how I'd make it affordable. Um, so after I got my BCBA, by, I don't know how I was able to accrue those hours, if I'm being hmm. honest, because it was really like, I was really struggling to, as I said, because these parents, like, they really couldn't afford it. And these are, again, like the top two, to, top 2% of earners. Um, but when, again, you put it into context, they'd have to have like what we call a shadow or an aid with them. Mm. Uh, that would probably, I don't know what it costs now, probably 15,000 Jamaican dollars a month, probably more um, than there is actually not a lot of special ed schools, um, mm. regular schools, um, what we call even the private schools there are not able to accommodate the kids out here. Um, and then again, as I said, there's no insurance coverage, so it's all private pay. So it's really it was really very challenging, which is why I pivoted to telehealth. And again, I was caring for my dad. Um, and so I made this pivot into telehealth because I was like, well, they can work from anywhere um, and I can be able to still contribute to the field, but at least I don't have to be limited to one location. Um, so I did my research and I researched and I researched. This was 2013. There were not a lot of places doing telehealth at the time, but I did find two places that were doing telehealth. Um, this was in New Mexico um, and I started working with them. And I really got my feet wet. And New Mexico was like very rural. Um, it was actually, it was kind of a culture shock for me as well, mm. because some things that they were not able to access, I was able to access in wow. Kingston. And so like they would have to drive two hours away to be able to access some of these things that I would recommend. So that was a culture shock for me too. Um, again, then I had to learn about the language barrier because some of these families, of course, are Spanish speaking and then I was not Spanish speaking. So, mm -hmm. and then, and then again, so then that kind of, in terms of learning about telehealth and learning to deliver telehealth, service, telehealth services effectively, it kind of, spun my interest into how do I deliver culture responsive services with what I experienced in Jamaica and learning that the traditional ABA model was not effective, was not applicable, and it just wasn't going to work. So the 10, 20, 40 hour model was not, not applicable, it wasn't going to work too expensive. And then so that prompted me to continue to work on research. And then mm. as I got into telehealth more deeply, as years passed, um, and like, I think it was in probably 2017, I started to do more research in telehealth. Um, and I kind of did this all on my own. I mean, I did learn from that first company I worked with. I did learn a lot from them, hmm. but I did a lot of research on my own in terms of, you know, HIPAA compliant platforms. Right. I mean, even at the time, I, I don't know if we were using Zoom. At the time I was using VC Pro, which I don't know if you ever heard of it. Yes, um, yeah. Yeah, using VC Pro, and um, a lot of people don't know that for you to be able to be, there's a lot of platforms out there that are HIPAA compatible, but they're not necessarily HIPAA compliant. So mm. they might meet the requirements, um, 
of making that privacy and like you're protecting yourself. But if there is some type of breach for whatever reason, then you actually as a provider or the clinician can actually face a fine if there's any security breach. So what you can do to protect yourself is you would get a business associate agreement with whatever company that is, whether it's Zoom for Healthcare, whether it's VC Pro, uh, whether it is Google Meet, which is now Google Meet on the Google Workspace, whether it's through Microsoft Teams, and the business associates agreement is really just a document, it's like a contract between you and that video conferencing provider or the data collection software mm. saying that, okay, if we if there is a breach, the onus is on the platform, on the software, it's not on you and the provider. And that's one way that you can protect yourself. And that is even that you need to do that for your email. You need to do that for any way that you're delivering PHI. Um, so that was one thing that the first thing that I learned um, that you had to have this PAA and signed. So why would uh, I've heard of these? Why would they agree to take on this liability? It seems that's like a great they, question. Seems like they wouldn't. That'd be a dumb idea on their part for some reason. But that's a great question. I think that it, you know they would have said that they, because they they are touting that you know they're HIPAA compliant, they right. are encrypted, that they're private and stuff. Um, maybe they, I think that maybe they haven't done all the research, but mm. it's maybe they haven't done all the research on their part. I, I agree that maybe it would be not the greatest idea, but it really is, again, you're entering agreement with that company right. or that, that software provider that if there is a breach, because they stated that they're encrypted, that they're HIPAA compliant, and that they are meeting all of this, right. and they're signing this agreement with you, so it doesn't fall on you. And so that the fine doesn't actually fall on you. And I hmm. think the fine for violating HIPAA, it's pretty hefty if I remember um so you don't want to do that so anybody that's practicing telehealth make sure you at least have a BAA signed because I think the fine is up to it can be up to 100 to 50,000 per violation uh yeah and the maximum penalty can actually be 1.5 million per year for each violation and that's from the HIPAA journal in 2020 so yeah so it actually is monetary consequences for confidentiality breach so it's like well I don't want to pay that fine so I just suck it up and I sucked it up and I paid um for VC Pro for a very long time and I made sure and I kept double checking like am I covered they're like you're good I'm like are you sure (laughs) I'm good and then yeah. Does, does the BAA itself cost anything or is it just more that you're paying for no, the, the, you're the, paying, for the you're program paying, or whatever? You're paying for the program. So, for example, the free version of Zoom or the free version of like Google Meet would not qualify. You're really mm. just paying for the service and then you're requesting a BAA. Now, you do have Doxy me right. which is free but the problem with docs in me um they will give you a signed baa it's just that you can't share your screen um mm. with that you it's it's they have limitations to it so if you're just like doing a video call like what we're doing now then it's fine but if you want to share your screen like with the rbt or if you're doing direct services then it's not going to work so you're gonna have to use the paid version mm. um so there are pros and cons of each um and does, does all this stuff just apply because you're serving folks in the states like is it different if you're you know going serving folks in like other countries 
As far as I am aware, I think it applies just to the United States because mm. I think it just applies to the States. But right, if, right. But but for me, I would say it's best practice. I would just follow HIPAA rules regardless um, because you still want to protect your learner's privacy and mm. the family's privacy and PHI um, regardless. I would just say always follow best practice because I do know in the pandemic, the highest pandemic, they kind of said, use whatever you need to use. It's yeah. fine. Like you can use FaceTime. Don't use FaceTime. Right. Yeah. You know, or you can use Skype. Don't use Skype. But um, they lifted it because everything was just so chaotic and they wanted mm -hmm. people to get care. Mm -hmm. But the again, my recommendation is to just always just follow by the book so that if God forbid something happens, that you're covered. Yeah, I know. I know in Canada, uh, well, it, it actually differs from province to province. But I know in the province I'm in, we have something called HIPAA with an F, with an F um, and it's very confusing. But one of one of the sort of ongoing you know sort of rules they have in place in order to be compliant is that whatever program you use the servers for that program have to be in canada uh, oh and, cool and, and, yeah and so if the servers are in america because the because the idea is that was that because of the patriot act in the states they with the Patriot Act, they could at, at any time access those servers if they're on American oh. soil, and so and so they had to be in Canada. But the problem was, you know, Zoom and Google and all these things didn't didn't have servers in Canada. Right. I think, I think at, during the height of the pandemic, they had maybe opened one in Toronto, and and I don't know that what like what a server can handle, and so right, you know, and so that That's became a, a really tricky barrier. I. I assume to this day that, you know, because most of our services are still done, you know, hybrid through. through yeah. Zoom and whatnot. I assume that the company feels safe, so they must have done something. Yeah. Right. But but yeah, it's it, it's really tricky. That is tricky because the other thing is if there's just one server in Zoom, then it would be overloaded and continue exactly. to crash and then it wouldn't be effective and efficient. Yeah, 100%. So. Yeah, so. yeah. And then the other question I'm just curious is because, you know, we often hear about all, all this, you know, requirements. Uh, have we have we so far heard of any examples of these big platforms being breached ever? I believe that there was in the pandemic, there was something called like Zooming or Zoom bombing or something like right. that. Yes, there was something called Zoom bombing right. where there was like unwanted disruptive intrusion by internet trolls and yeah. in a video conferencing call. Yeah. So then people are like, no, we don't want to use Zoom. Or what yes. they would do is that they would have like, they'd put passwords. You can put passwords on your Zoom meetings as well so that you, or you only admit someone mm. to the meeting when you know that's the person. So right. there was having <laughs> Zoom bombing uh, incidents right. in, um, uh, in that so they were recommending like you don't publicly share your meeting links right. creating a waiting room securing securing your meetings like with a password making sure only the host can share your screen locking your meeting after everyone has joined like requiring like whoever's supposed to join um uh, like is authenticating if you're not sure you kick them out so that was definitely happening in the heights of the pandemic probably because people were bored um, mm -hmm. But they mm -hmm. have said, I think recently, they said that they have, um, they were able to tame it, <laughs> the meeting intrusions. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
And uh, yeah, I think because, yeah, in 2023, they said it still happens, but security experts say it's far less prevalent than it was in 2020. Um, probably because we're interacting more in person and because they they have made the product more difficult for you to use. Um, so I I don't think, I have never, this has per- never happened to me personally, like mm-hmm. having somebody join. I mean, the worst thing that has ever happened is I've had maybe like uh, a Beast Bay accidentally join, like very early stages at Beast Bay accidentally join like my meeting by like they joined the call by accident like on VC because the VC you're just online you can join mm-hmm. um if you see the person online um but then they'll just like hop off of like oh I'm mm-hmm. sorry I'm in a meeting they didn't realize um but in terms of right now I use just Google Meet and Microsoft Teams and you can't really I haven't had any intrusions or anything like that, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to be very honest with you, I'm not the biggest fan of Zoom. And the only reason that is, is because you can't pin when I'm when I'm doing like remote or telehealth supervision. Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beal Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug and play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beal Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmgfreeconsult.com. That's BMG. F-R-E-E-Consult.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is telehealth. You can't pin Zoom anywhere unless you have like dual monitors. You can't pin it. So like if you're taking notes, like if you're using an electronic data collection and you're doing your programming, you can't pin it anywhere. Mm. Um, whereas VC, you could pin the screen of your learner and the RBT in the home. Or if they were doing telehealth directors, you could pin it and you could observe everyone else. And you can do that also with Teams where it can be, even if so, it's a small window. And same with Google Meets, you can do a picture in picture as well. Mm. So Zoom, although it has all of these amazing features, that's the one thing I wish they would have is that the ability to pin the video um, so that once you come out of Zoom, because once you click out of Zoom, you don't see the person. You can hear them, right. you just don't see the person right. So that's one thing gotcha, I wish they gotcha. had that feature. Yeah. And so, and this may just be more questions about working in the States, which is so convoluted. <laughs> so convoluted. I'm so glad I don't do it. Um, but um, so you're, you're in Jamaica, but are, are, do it, so right now, do you work for a company? Yes, I do. I do work for a company that is based in Florida. Um, uh, they're based in Florida, Missouri, and mm. Georgia. 
So those uh, are, so then are those the only states you're providing telehealth to? Uh, right now, yes, the only states I'm providing telehealth to. But in the past, I have provided services in New Mexico, in Texas, in Michigan, California. Wow. Uh, trying to think if I missed anywhere. I did get licensed in Virginia, but I never provided services there. Um, but so far as I can remember, it's been Florida, Michigan, Cali, New Mexico, Texas. Um, and that, that was my follow-up question. So are you actually yeah. are you actually licensed in all these states? So Cali, California doesn't require um, a license yet. Mm. And Florida doesn't require a license. Mm. But Missouri requires a state license. Virginia requires a state license. Um, and I believe, I know New York requires a really, like, very, like, Oh, and New Jersey. I've worked in New Jersey as well. Um, New York requires a really hefty license to process, yes. um, uh, which I, I've i always been told, like, unless I plan to live there, don't go through it <laughs> at mm, all. So, yes, yeah, so I do have a Missouri state license and a Virginia state license. Um, but I don't do it unless I see it as, like, I can actually reap the benefits of working in that state and, like, I can see it um, because it's it's a long process and it's expensive and mm. I mean so um and some of the some of the processes like I I personally feel like some of it I I see the need of having a state license but sometimes it just feels like they just want to collect your money mm. <laughs> they're just like collecting your money and um but some of them they actually ask you for references and they ask you to get reference letters and they ask mm. you to um I think in New York you have to take an exam if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. But yeah, I am yeah. licensed in two other states. And of course, in Florida, if they were to put a state licensure, I would, because that's my other, my second home, if you will. Right. And then you, you have to, obviously, there's, I guess there's a, be like annual fees and all that sort of thing with all those things. Yeah. Yeah. There's annual fees. Um, luckily, in Missouri, my company um, covers that. I mm. am not so sure about what that looks like but my company does cover that so i'm grateful nice. for that but nice. in terms of virginia i think i did not renew <laughs> i didn't renew because i wasn't practicing so i'm like well but it's actually pretty easy to renew it but um mm -hmm. i didn't renew it because i didn't see the point in doing it because i wasn't actively practicing so yeah and so that can that's one downside is that it can be expensive if mm -hmm. you're maintaining all of these licenses in different states and you're not actively practicing is that it can get expensive because yeah. it's probably like 150 to 200 dollars to renew mm -hmm. renew your license and that can add up in addition to like certification in addition to ceus yeah, in yeah, addition yeah. to professional liability insurance and so it does add up because um, you do want to have that as well if you're doing telehealth just to protect yeah. yourself so do you think i mean it, you probably don't know but do you think there's probably more telehealth being practiced in those states that don't require the licensure or don't, don't require you to have it because more folks could do it i think that there's probably if from what i've seen there is probably a higher i think there's a higher um i've seen higher if you're to look like if you're to look on indeed i have seen high instances um of practicing in georgia um in california like telehealth jobs in georgia california um florida can be tricky it depends on the funder and it depends on the learners like insurance yeah. like that florida can be very tricky but i've seen california is one place that 
they sometimes they require hybrid or sometimes you can be completely remote. Mm. Um, sometimes what they do as well is they may have someone on site that is like a BCABA, but they call them behavior specialists, but they're basically BCABAs. Um, and so they're the ones that they go in the homes and they're the support and you are, uh, what I've also found really helpful is having like a monthly team meeting which you have with like all of the staff members. So whether you have a BCABA on the team or like a clinical support specialist, that's someone that is at the master's level or getting their master's, all the RBTs and all the parents and you meet once a month and you just discuss the programs. What do you like to keep? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about the behaviors? You go through the graphs, you go through the data and the problem is this, of course, is not always reimbursable um, by insurance, mm. so that has to come out of the company. Um, but I have seen the benefits of that in terms of having quality assurance and clinical quality and making sure everyone is on the same page. Mm. Because there are instances where you could be providing telehealth and you don't see the parent at all. Or you could be providing telehealth and you only see one RBT. And so I think it's important to have those monthly team meetings and monthly check-ins to make sure everyone is good or even just mm -hmm. having a team meeting to just review the programs, making sure people are comfortable. Um, another thing that I have found helpful is just even like providing feedback that is typed because um, sometimes you don't get to interact that well mm. with the RBT Um or sometimes waiting until they're on a the kids on a break mm -hmm. to give feedback. Mm -hmm. But I have found like if they're really struggling, then again maybe scheduling a meeting after, um, and then or as I like writing tight feedback and sending it to them, um, giving them video modeling is also really helpful. So it it's taken some time for me to figure out what works best for some people. Mm. Some people prefer this like a face to face. When I say face to face, I mean like a you know, like a synchronous meeting. Mm. Um, so, so there's ins and outs. And then, of course, the caveat is, is that it's not really beneficial for all learners. I, know I would not take on a learner that has severe, um, like SIB or, you know, severe physical aggression because then I'm not in there in person to be mm. able to model or stop or um, I, then I would not be comfortable doing that. So... There are their drawbacks and some people, I think they're just not comfortable with it at all. But I do think it's viable and it's effective, but you have to be incredibly organized. You have to be on top of everything, mm. have to be able to be able to self-manage yourself. Um, you have to be proactive as well to, to you have to be on top of everything. Um, yeah, it's not yeah. for everyone though. It's not for everyone to be able to work from home. Well, and also, I mean, like, just even just dealing with the time zones alone oh yeah that's a pain i mean as far just as far as sort of having boundaries and having sort yes. of work hours and family hours that must oh, be kind yeah. of difficult it is it is because sometimes particularly when i was working in california parents would at the early stages parents would you know email me like at 11 which is 11 like it would be probably let's say eight their time but it's eleven mm. my time mm -hmm. and then I would respond initially but I'm like mm. oh my gosh I'm like getting burnt out and so I would just then Gmail created this amazing thing called schedule send yes I love it. <laughs> and I love schedule send um, where you can just schedule send an email or you can just wait till the next day to respond so I think yes. another important thing with 
not telehealth or even in person it's just having really firm boundaries like work-life mm-hmm. boundaries because i think when you're working from home because assuming you obviously work from home is knowing when to respond to emails when to respond yeah. to this when to respond to inquiries and having a separate place to like differentiate like okay this is my workspace this is my work time and this is my time my downtime um otherwise you're gonna burn yourself out and you're just gonna be very miserable and your work and home just gets very enmeshed and that is yeah. just i love schedule send i think it's it, it's a godsend i it just is. wish i just wish the people that i was schedule sending to also schedule sent to me me too <laughs> me too because <laughs> it's there it's not it's there for all types of accounts now so yeah. Because yeah. you're still going to get that email at you know eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night, and and yes, if you've got your if you've got it on your phone, you know it pops up, and you're like, yes, you don't want to. Th- uh, now you're going to think about it all night, and so exactly. You know, so the schedule is in response, but making it seem like it's at eight or nine o'clock the next day. Exactly, is, exactly. Nice, but but I don't. They they don't always get the hint. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. But do not disturb. You have, I mean, there's do not disturb as well on your phone. But as you're right, you do get emails coming in or notifications coming in, and then you start thinking about it all the time, which is annoying. Absolutely. You you mentioned hybrid versus not. What what's what's what do you mean by that? Well, so hybrid is when like I have seen where people will do telehealth maybe two two weeks out of the month, and then they'll go in person two weeks. So, mm. um, like I have a colleague that. Like, for example, this week he did telehealth supervision and then maybe next week he will do in person or maybe he might do three weeks telehealth and one week in person. I have also seen a lot of jobs where they require you go in person like once for the week and you are once for the, sorry, not once for the week, once for the month and you can do the rest of it remote um, or they require two contacts in person. So it's like a hybrid. So you're not commuting all the time. Mm. But you um, commute like at least twice for the month and you see like all of your kids and you go in person and the rest is like you're working from home. So that's mm. like a hybrid setting where or in the event, like let's say the RBC calls out sick and you still want to have session, then you can go in in person and provide session yourself. Um, I've seen other places do that as well. They'll just cover the RBT to not lose out on that kid receiving services. Mm. that's so, gotta be hard for folks that truly want to work remotely like yourself yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and so you it, don't do hybrid i assume no i don't do hybrid um i just learned over the years that i i think telehealth works really well for me i mm. made it work for me for 10 years and that's just kind of my hard hard line i don't want to call it a hard line but that's just my boundary yeah. with work um because i've made it work uh it's as i said it's my favorite thing to talk about my favorite thing to research i love educating people about it i love doing webinars about it and i love the research that's been coming out um and as i said it's effective now are there limitations of course the technology fails <laughs> internet fails um you know, device failure, um, you don't always see the learners. Maybe mm. like sometimes I've seen, like I've had, you know, RBTs take me on walks with them. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm getting dizzy. Or they're <laughs> running with me. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm getting dizzy. Um, so 
it's always like a challenge, like trying to overcome some of those stuff, like the device failure or internet connectivity issues. Um, but that's not to say there isn't something to, I think as technology gets better and better and phones get better and tablets get better and they get more, they're less expensive, um, things will get um, a lot easier. Because even like, like I learned about this, um, my sister actually, like she has a, a house, uh, she has like a flat adjacent and she, she got like this, I think it was a T-Mobile or Verizon box, which is like $20 a month. And it's its own Wi-Fi mm. and you can connect to it. And I was testing it and it was pretty fast. Like the upload and download speed was pretty. And I couldn't believe that like this box, it was literally like its own Wi-Fi. Yes. It was not like it just plugged it in. And so it wasn't even a hotspot. It was literally like Wi-Fi itself. It was yeah. the hotspot. So as I think as technology continues to develop, um, we'll be able to have stuff like that. So maybe that can be something people can look into as well when like in those really rural areas where yes, you know, it's it's hard to have consistent in you know, consistent um connectivity. Um, or maybe the families are not able to afford like, you know, that fast Wi-Fi mm -hmm. as well, or high speed Wi-Fi. Um and then again, there's the hotspots that you can use, not on your phone, um, but like a hotspot, mobile hotspot device. Um, uh, and yeah, and so I've even seen people use like the Bluetooth headsets, like the earbuds, so that mm. they can hear you clearly if they're like in a school or something like that. Or um, one thing I've also seen, which I really love because I used to use this when I was and I used to record myself it's like it's called like a an octopus like tripod I don't know if you've ever seen them where they're super flexible yeah and you can put them like on a pole you can put them on a like a gate you can put them anywhere and you can twist them and they're just fantastic yeah um, and they're one. not super yeah. I love I love it love it yeah. love it love it it's like the greatest thing and so I always recommend them but they're not very very expensive either no no, no, but they definitely make make that easier. I wonder, yeah. you, you a couple of things you touch on it is sort of like the because telehealth is obviously you know a great option for folks that live in kind of rural areas where there's no services available and you know yes. they can't get to those places. But you know, often folks in rural areas tend to be you know I mean maybe this isn't always the case, but are often folks that are also you know maybe you know, you'll have less access to, to, to resources and, and, yes. and funding and whatnot. And so, you know, the thing, you know, the piece about sort of having the technology and whatnot, uh, how, how do you kind of navigate that with sort of families that, you know, just, just can't afford anything? That's, that's always been uh, very challenging. So I, I mean, for me, if I'll be honest, sometimes I will just purchase things for the families myself. Mm. Um, Sometimes I will ask for the company to purchase certain things yeah. for myself. Sometimes they will gift, like they will gift certain things. Like I have seen um, places gift like a sensory, I can't remember what it was, like a sensory pod thing. Sure. It was a sensory, it was a sensory, it was like, it was like a, 
I don't remember. It was something that the child could go in and just like be in like envelopes in this like gotcha. yeah. thing. Um, and I've seen them gift stuff like that to them. And I, it's it's so hard because you want to recommend all of these things, but then you have to be uh, mindful that, okay, they have all these little family members to care mm-hmm. for. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a multi-generational family. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's grandma that's there. Sometimes so you also have to be mindful of everything that's going on. So mm. You might want to recommend, oh, you should get this, you should get this, but then you might also want to use what's there. So again, there have been times where if I really feel that the child will benefit from having access to this and I'll just purchase it and send it to the the home myself mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, it's just not their fault that they are struggling financially and, you know, it's just is what it is. So... Mm-hmm. But I have seen companies be very kind and they are able to get either um, they're able to get like a funding for it or they're able to get sponsorship for something like that um, for certain mm. things. Um, or again, they try and go to the dollar store and get other things in terms of accessing materials and stuff. Mm. Mm. But yeah, that that's one of the really hard things Um when you do work in some of these rural areas and they're really low income families mm. and um, you have to try and find a way to work with what they have and work within their means. And then also not um, come across as like, well, you need to have this and this and this for your child to thrive because that's also being kind of culture responsive as well. It's not just mm. also looking at like ethnicity it's also what is their socioeconomic culture as well. Like what, what does their day-to-day life look like? They may not mm. be able to afford a tablet. They may not be able to, maybe they only have one tablet. Maybe their tablet is not, maybe their tablet is like the one tablet that everyone uses. So mm. how, how do you work around that to, again, again, meet that child's needs? So you sometimes just have to get creative. Um, no, obviously you can't buy these expensive things for every child because mm-hmm. that would, that's not you know fiscally responsible but i mean it can be heartbreaking sometimes um i don't have all the answers i guess Mm. maybe like sponsorships and scholarships i've seen other companies they have like nonprofits and they will either sponsor the child or provide a scholarship and then they're able to purchase things for them as well so i think it just takes a village to be able to really support Mm. um support these families as well because you got to think that i mean i could be wrong but i i kind of i'm assuming that most of the folks that are using telehealth services are in these rural communities because yeah. if they live in the big cities they have centers they can go to or they have yeah. in-home services that are available yeah you know, and so on and so forth is, is that the case or I would say typically, yes, like um, they either live really, so in Florida, maybe they live really, really far south where it's hard for people to mm. get to. Um, so like really, like really, really, really far south, even though they have access to, they may have access to lots of like everything. Like they can go to like, uh, they can go to, they, they, they have like a very fulfilling life and they can have access to everything. But like for them to have access to services, the BCBAs or behavior analysts are located like further north in Miami. Um, so it's not as easy for them to, for BCBA to jump in. But maybe mm. the RBT lives close to them. Um, 
but yeah, in general, I, I think I'd say more for the most part, I don't typically work in big cities. It's usually yeah. in rural areas. Um, most of the time it's in rural areas um, or areas that are two, two hours away from the city um, or their big city. So, right. but, but, um, but as I said, it's been a very pleasant experience. Um, a lot of families are usually willing to, you know, get what they need if they have the means to do so. Um, mm. And they're always open. Some some are not always open. Sometimes it's hard to build rapport with the families as well over a screen. Yeah. Um, that can be challenging as well, which is why I think it's important to ask like questions about, you know, hey, what do you guys enjoy what you guys like to celebrate what's important to you um because i i remember like even something as i used to teach this child um i was teaching this child like wh questions and it wasn't relevant for us to teach the child like when it's christmas or mm. when it's halloween because they don't celebrate mm. those types of holidays because of their religion mm. so Again, just being culturally responsive, just, again, asking simple questions. What would you like us to teach? What would you like the child to know? Or what would you mm. like the child to learn about? I think just having that conversation, just having a simple conversation. What would you like us to, I would love to teach this to your child. What would you like them to know? Mm. And I was like, oh, well, I'd really like them to be able to eat like rice and peas. Like, okay, they'll get pictures of rice and peas. And it's like, okay, what else do you want to know? It's like, oh, I really want them to know about like planting. I'm just using Jamaican example. Yes. Like, okay, all right, I'll get pictures of planting. Okay, what else do you like? It's like, oh, I really want them to know about pig sales. Like, okay. And then instead of just giving them pictures of like burgers and fries and, um, the, the standard because I know like we get when we get stimuli like it will be generic stuff that they assume everybody eats but I think it's really important to individualize materials based on what the family's eating what mm. what what they see in their home what they are using like incorporating like even if like prayer is part of their routine like incorporating that having them learn how to imitate like imitating like clasping their hands or having them they learn to sit quietly for at least like 15 seconds and like mm. increasing that tolerating that as well so they can participate in social things as well so i think in terms of being culture responsive even though you are remote and even though you are behind a screen there are lots of ways to make it culture responsive because the thing is Everyone, I feel like a lot of people in the States, they come from so many different places. Yes. They're the first generation or second generation and they want to hold on to that culture. And I know for me, I want to hold on to my culture. And so um, I've seen it where it's really important to them to be able for them to be able to practice what they learned and what they saw growing up. Even like a family that my neighbors in Jamaica, like the the mom is Russian, the dad is Indian. So the children, they speak, they speak Russian, they speak a little Hindi, and they also speak English. Mm. And so they have prayer time. So it's really like a really interesting like microcosm yeah. of culture. Um, so it's important that they also know that and sometimes like I think it's hard, sometimes it's hard for the kids too, because they might want to assimilate as well. So they teach them how to tolerate being 
a little bit different from their peers and teaching mm. them it's okay to because they might even be subject to bullying as well so it's another thing too so being ensuring your programming is culturally responsive and also take it into account also the feelings of the child like what is the child trying to say to you like oh my gosh I don't want to do this I don't like this why do I have to do this I can't stand this and so I think it's important to also listen to the autonomy have the child also have input on the program as well mm. not just also listening to the parents which can be a struggle too uh, none of this sounds, you know, far-fetched as far as, you know, just culturally responsive care, as I've heard other yeah. folks talk. Are there are there sort of specific things that around culturally responsive care that we need to think about with telehealth versus in-person that, that are kind of different? Uh, maybe, I'm trying to think. Mm. Maybe depending on, so for example, like I live in very, wherever I am, I live in very hot, <laughs> hot uh, areas where I'm in sure. Jamaica and Florida. So maybe if it's a more, um, how do I say this? More, what's the word that I'm looking for? Hmm. More conservative family. Maybe I would not wear a sleeveless. Gotcha. Right. Um, or maybe I would have a very neutral virtual background. Mm. Um, maybe I would um again stay away from because sometimes parents they'll talk to you and then they'll they sometimes it's good to let them lead the conversation as well. So it's sometimes just having how your parents is as well. Some parents they don't care. Um, so sometimes you may want to cover up a little bit more, even mm. though they're only seeing you from like the head up yeah um which is can be or you can simply like angle your camera if you have like sure. a usb camera to to up uh can angle it up so they only see your face yeah. um maybe not wearing too much makeup i mean i don't mm. wear makeup but like we're not wearing too much makeup if that's not something that they're into mm. um i think also just also acknowledging maybe like oh i know that it's yesterday was was i think holy was on wednesday like, oh, I noticed that Holy was like this week, or oh, I noticed that you're observing this. Um, but I feel like it's I feel like it's more or less the same for in person. I don't find it to be too different yeah, than yeah. being in person. It's just that you're not physically there to interact. You're just interacting behind a screen and then you get kind of get passed from one person to the next. Um uh but the only thing I can think of is your parents. And, and um, how would you, that make, that makes sense. But so, you know, so the, the, I mean, I think that that's a good example of sort of being in the warm climate and, you know, wearing less just because it's warm and obviously conservative families. Some, you know, some yeah. don't like to see arms or, or, right. or whatever, um, you know, in fact, there may even be some sort of religious kind of sort yes. of things and they, they don't like to see any skin, um, yes. you know, even, even the face. Um, right. You know, and it's certainly probably more so because you're a woman they're they're, they're yes. you know, they have certain sort of expectations of you than you know right than if you're a man um how how do you assess that i mean you're not you, i don't you know are you asking you're probably not asking them what kind of clothes do you want me to wear at these sessions you know it's probably not a no. common question so There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them. 
modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The second secret word is Jamaica. I think so. I guess I try and take nonverbal cues, um, mm. watching like their facial expressions, depending on how they receive me. Mm. I also try and take cues from what they are wearing. What is mm. mom always wearing? What is yes. what are the, the little girls wearing in the family? Yes. What, how are they always dressed? Yes. And sometimes, you know, they they don't like they don't expect you to conform. Um, they are fine with however you are um, and they kind of sometimes they accept you as you are mm. but I think it's sometimes if you notice like mom always has a kind of mm-hmm. she has like a look on her face I like yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah or like her tone of voice I wouldn't let of, my daughter do this yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, or the tone yeah. of voice changes when you come on screen right. then you're like okay maybe I need to be a little bit more mindful and yeah. just a little bit more respectful gotcha, gotcha. and uh, and then again as or or sometimes they might say something, but they may not. I haven't had any experiences where they say anything to me yeah. outwardly um, about like my appearance or anything. But that's what I can think of. But as I said, in my experience, I haven't found it to be too different to being in person, even though my in-person experience has been very limited, which is very unusual. But mm. um, I, I have not found it to be too, too different. Um, but I will say you have to definitely try a lot harder to build mm-hmm. that rapport. Um, you have to make a bigger effort. You have to reach out a lot more. I always ask, like, what's the preferred method of communication? Because sometimes they prefer texting over calling. They prefer emails over text. Or, so I always ask them that as well. Mm-hmm. So I think just I think just asking questions is simple or just taking cues like if you text and they don't respond if you call and they do respond if they call they don't respond then you can kind of take the dates on that like okay i have texted mom 10 times and she responded nine out of 10 times Mm -hmm. i've called mom 15 times and she's responded zero out of Mm -hmm. 15 times so okay yeah texting is texting is the way to go yeah, or yeah. i i emailed mom on thursday yeah. and they i or emailed mom thursday morning she responded thursday evening so okay mm. email is a pretty good way to contact and then mm. i ask as well like what are you comfortable with what are you comfortable with us using where are you comfortable with us using as reinforcers and some be like okay he's fine with using the screen or no, I don't want them to use the screen. Like I don't want this at all. Mm. And I've also, and then also, I think managing sometimes some parents' expectations where they want their child. I, I have also found when um, if they are first generation, I find that there is this thing, what we call, what I call cultural dissonance, where you are trying to assimilate to the culture that you have moved to or migrated to. But then your child is also like their child is growing up in this new culture and then still trying to retain their old culture. Mm. Um, and so sometimes the parents, they want their child to completely assimilate and they're like, no, I don't want them to learn our language. No, only English mm. and or no, only this, only that. I only want them to learn this. I want them to eat this. I want them to eat that. And so mm. that is some that can be interesting as well. But then 
then there is, of course, there is a person who kind of is like pulled between two cultures where they're kind of like, like let's say grandma is the one that they only speak the child in Spanish. Yeah. Mom might understand Spanish, like understand it, but they don't speak it. Yeah. And then the child can respond in Spanish, um, but also respond in English. And then so mm. there's like a, a variable there. And then grandma be like, well, I want the child to learn in Spanish. And then the mom is like, well, I actually think that it's okay if they learn in English. And then mm. it's like, okay. And then so if this, again, if like it's a multi-generational family, grandma lives at home, mom lives at home. It's kind of like, how do we kind of have a meeting of the mind um, and not offend what people, because grandma is always mm-hmm. there. Mom is always there. So how do you, again, you know it's strike that delicate balance or yeah there's even been instances where um the elder matriarch and family or the elder patriarch and family doesn't even know about the diagnosis and right. so it's like oh oh the the this grandpa doesn't know about the diagnosis so don't mention it um they just think mm. we're here to play so uh. you have to also be careful um as well and respect that and respect that the parents wishes so there's some tricky things that you have to navigate. Um, really tricky. Yeah, yeah. And I found, I've experienced that quite often, to be honest. Um, grandma wants one thing, mom wants one thing. Grandma knows one thing, mom, parents know another thing. Um, so yeah. it can be hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And how do you work with sort of the uh, the families that actually want them to learn things in both languages? When you so only know I, one. when I only know one, I will reach out to someone that speaks the uh, speaks the language. Or yeah. if I don't know anyone that speaks the language, I will say, okay, here is the list of things that I want to teach. Can we? Is this the correct translation? I might translate it mm. in like Google. Sure. Uh, now that there's ChatGPT, maybe ChatGPT can help me. Yes. <laughs> Um, or I normally I'll ask someone that speaks a language conversationally and translate it. But then again, you have to be careful because maybe their Spanish or their type of, you know, their way of speaking and spelling mm. and pronunciation is not the way that they say. So I might send a list to the parents and say, are you okay with translating this? So what I will do is I'll have the target in, let's say, in English slash Spanish, and then the child has to tact or respond in English and Spanish or am I separate it and say okay we're going to do it in English and then they do it in English first then they do it in Spanish um, but I find that because like both languages are spoken in the home or either one is spoken at school and one is spoken at home they really actually respond really quickly and so it's like hey what's this and they say oh okay apple and it's like okay and in spanish and they say oh it's like okay and what color is this and then they'll say it's like oh blue and then what color in and in espanol i say oh azul. and then so i mm. find make it really exciting you make it a game and not make it super fun like you make it really reinforcing yeah and then when you see them starting to like fade or like okay i'm done it's like okay let's take a break you did so good. Mm-hmm. You did amazing. So I have had targets in the programs where it's, let's say, Apple slash whatever, or mm. um, Blue slash Azul, or Red slash Rojo, or 
and I miss I, if I'm butchering <laughs> the pronunciation, I'm so sorry. I'm not yeah. speaking. Right, but, right, yeah, I've right. done it that way where we have the target slash like English slash whatever other language. Mm. Um, or if that's like the only language being spoken, then we just have them request in the language being spoken at home. Gotcha. And then we just learn as we go along the way. Cool. How folks can protect them. Well, not only how folks can protect themselves, because it shouldn't be on sort of you as the practitioner to, to protect yourself. There should be the company that's protecting you. Um, right. And so I'm wondering, are, are there are there questions maybe folks, when folks are sort of looking maybe for a yeah. company to work for that they can ask to sort of maybe not get themselves into those situations, you know, yeah, so, policies or whatever. Right. So what I have learned to ask is I ask kind of questions. Um, when I I ask like a lot of questions, like when I'm interviewing, so I'll ask like, hey, like, how do you guys feel about DEI? Do you have mm. DEI policies? Is this a part of your company culture? And if they kind of like, uh, no, uh, or not really, or if they kind of like roll their eyes and I know that's not the company for me, mm. it's Yes, or we're actually interested in doing that, or we have like a DEI specialist, or no, we love to learn about that. Like, tell mm -hmm. us more about it. Then I know that they're willing to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, or if I say like, how do you guys feel about like? I mean, if you are uncomfortable as an analyst on a case, how do you guys handle that in terms of if the analyst is not comfortable, mm -hmm. the family is difficult to work with? How mm -hmm. do you guys handle difficult situations like that? Because not all families and analysts work together how right. do you guys navigate difficult situations like that and then if they give me the answer that i'm looking for it's like okay we'll evaluate the situation we want you to be comfortable we will either reassign because we want we prioritize you and we know that families can be difficult and if they can see it from both sides not just of course who is bringing in the money mm. um and they can of course, BC is bringing money too, but I ask those kind of questions and then it's like, okay, what's your company policy if someone is harassed by a family or someone is, you know, facing microaggressions? And if someone says to me, what's a microaggression? Mm. And I explain, what's a microaggression? It's like, oh, no, no, we don't tolerate microaggressions at all. This is actually in, you know, it's actually in our company handbook. And I'm like, okay, fantastic. So I kind of check that off myself. So I find mm. like there are ways, um, there are ways to ask questions in terms of what you're looking for in a company. Mm. So it's like, what does company growth look like? Yeah. You know, what does your demographics look like? Mm. What do the demographics of your clientele look like? Um, sometimes just ask those hard questions because I think if you ask hard questions before, um, it gives you insight as to what the company stands mm. for. Um, like, you know, I noticed that your mission said this. I mean, of course, it requires a little bit of research. I noticed your mission says this. Tell me a little bit about that. How does this tie into DEI? Did you know that DEI is becoming a CE requirement in 2026 or something? Like you have to have two DEI yep. uh, credits by the BCB. How does mm. your company plan to incorporate that mm. in your company mm. culture mm. and stuff like that? And asking those hard-hitting questions. And sometimes I might say, that's a really great question. Let me get back to you on that. Um, another thing I ask is how do you guys ensure HIPAA compliance or how do you guys ensure... How do what do you guys do to provide telehealth services? What yeah. practice management do you use? Simple stuff like that. But I find if you ask the hard questions before, 
Um, and I actually, <laughs> I actually created a Google Doc of questions to ask in an interview that oh, I nice. compiled. Yeah, uh, questions to ask in an interview that I've compiled over the past couple, five or six, seven years. Mm. Um, and I add to it um, because I find that either you ask now or you find out later, and yeah. best to find out before. So I think asking them and putting them on the spot, either they will like handle it really beautifully or they might say they'll get back to you and they'll mm. be able to do some research because maybe they don't handle that maybe you're the first person that has asked that question but they're willing to learn and willing to grow or they have something in place because they've experienced it before and then they know how to handle it or maybe they're not interested enough at all and then you know that's not the kind of company you want to work for mm -hmm. so so my recommendation is to ask all the questions don't be afraid to ask questions Write on everything you can think of, things that you don't want to do, something as simple as what's your monthly billable requirement as well. That's a big thing um, mm. because I find that with telehealth, they think you can work a lot more hours because you're right. not no, no travel. So, so no travel time. So you also want to make sure you're having a healthy work-life balance because you're sitting mm -hmm. at the computer for eight hours a day and that can also take a toll on your body and that's bad for ergonomics and so you Absolutely. want to make sure that you're asking those types of questions and if you can't make those billable hours then what's going to happen like yeah. are you penalized do you get moved to, to part-time do you get moved to hourly like what happens is there any punishment uh what happens if you get covid like because some people get mm -hmm. COVID and they are out for three weeks, like I was in October 2021. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. what what happens in those scenarios? So I think it's important to ask all the questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Even if you're a brand new spanking, ask all the questions mm -hmm. um, so that you know what you're getting yourself into. But just know before than three months in, you're like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Yeah, yeah. Of course, you've had 10 years to come up with these questions. I mean, it's yeah. going to be a little tougher for the new BCBA to yeah. even think to ask any of those questions for yes. any employer. Um, yes. do, do you think, I mean, obviously, we don't want to tell employers to, you know, make assumptions about you either. But no. um, are there things just for the maybe the, the, the business owners and the employers that are listening? Are there things that... Like I don't know that it should be on you as the as the employee to ask all those questions, you know, because you might not think to ask those questions. Right. And so are there things the employer can do to sort of, you know, provide you some of that information, you know, up front to say, you know, we have this, we have that, and so on and so forth. So I think outside of the salary and I think outside of the salary, the I, the billable requirements I think yeah. it's important to let people know like what happens if something goes wrong because life happens right, right. so what happens if there's bereavement what happens if someone gets sick what happens mm. if um uh something are you a bcba supervisor looking to streamline your practice or maybe you're working towards your bcba and need to find the right supervisor Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. 
If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The third secret word is responsiveness. Unexpected happens. What happens if all the clients have COVID and you are unable to bill? So what mm. happens? So so so, which again was an issue in twenty twenty one, right? Was, yeah. So so, what happens then? What do you do? What can staff do to 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 make their billing hours, or if they're not able to bill because you're still make, like if they're salaried, like what can they do? Hmm. Um, and then talk about the company culture and be transparent about the company culture and what your company stands for, um, what you don't stand for. Um, hmm. I think it's important to talk. About, like, yeah. I guess you. I mean, of course, you want to. I think all business owners. I'm not a business owner. You want to sell your company culture but I just think being transparent and then asking them if they have questions about it like okay do you have Mm -hmm. any questions after you've kind of said this is what our company stands for this is what we believe in we believe in this and believe in that and even if they say well okay I may not be able to commit to that like what are your and also maybe also being upfront about their non-negotiables as well like their non-negotiables is x y and z right because I think Sometimes they may not always be clear about that. True. Um, yeah. Beginning. So, what are the non-negotiables like? I mean, because I think not everybody reads the company handbook in detail. So, maybe even just reviewing that mm. um, as well, like what the non-negotiables are for your company. What are the rights to termination? What does progress look like in mm. the company, or what does growth look like in the company for? If you're starting as an RBT, BCABA, or BCBA trainee, or mm. a BCBA, what does growth look like? Um, what, you know, and I mean, outside of the benefits and all that stuff, because we're going to go over that too. But mm. I think it's important to know what does growth look like? What does company culture look like? What is it like to work at the company? How do people communicate? How, how are challenges worked through? I think that's another big one. How do you work through challenges? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, again, how do you handle difficult families or different challenges or frequent cancellations which happens? Or mm-hmm. how do you handle it, inconsistencies as well? Because that's going to happen wherever you go. You're going to have patients that cancel frequently, families that cancel frequently, techs that cancel all the time. So how do you handle that? How do you remedy people who are inconsistent families are inconsistent um and i think even like if you utilize obm like how do you use that how do you motivate your staff as well mm. or how do you rectify when a staff is struggling but they're trying their best to mm-hmm. um so i know that's a lot but i think it comes down to company culture rectifying yeah. challenges um rectifying challenges how do you handle cancellations and what are the non-negotiables in yeah. terms of like criteria for termination or and then what again going back to growth i think everybody wants to know what growth looks like yeah. in a particular company no it's, it seems like a lot but i mean if you provide all this stuff up front then it's all about retention i mean you're going to keep yes folks, right you keep, you know? exactly and, yeah. and the amount of money you spend you know recruiting and and hiring every time you know you're right. quickly, you're quickly going you know and if you're not telling people what they need to know and they're waiting, waiting for them to find out the hard way. 
right um, yeah you're gonna have a lot of problems for sure exactly for sure so i do think it's important to be upfront if you want to have that retention yeah wow Lots of fantastic tips today, Kimberly. Really cool. Yeah, I learned a lot. Learned a lot you. more about telehealth that I didn't know about. I think I think <laughs> learning about telehealth during the pandemic was, you know, it was um, weird because well, a, yeah, it was abrupt. It came out of nowhere. It was forced. Yes. It was forced, it was on, forced on people, on, yeah. on families, and was forced on on staff. But now that we're sort of, you know, for the most part, kind of out of it and and back to sort of you know, regular old telehealth, um, right. you know, it's, it's nice to learn sort of how it's supposed to be, not, yes. to, not how it is, um, you know, in a pandemic. And I'm not going to ask yeah. any questions about a pandemic anymore because no. I don't, I don't want to jinx it. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. God, I could not do that again. No, absolutely not. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Really cool stuff. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet.